Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kurt LeBlanc. I'm Tyler Orton. And today on the show, we're going to talk about the world's march into trade wars, plus the economic implications of Canada's diplomatic fallout with Saudi Arabia. So a wide range of innovative, disruptive technologies are making payments and transactions easier for businesses now. On September 13th, we're going to conduct a BIB fintech panel, and we're going to look at how small and medium-sized businesses can make informed decisions in this new landscape. Tickets and information are available now at BIB.com slash events. Canada's position regarding human rights in Saudi Arabia, it's resulted in a series of diplomatic and economic repercussions. Canada's ambassador has been expelled from the country and around 15,000 Saudi students have been ordered to leave Canada. We're going to take a deeper dive on this issue with Walid Hijazi. He's an associate professor of economic analysis and policy at the Rotman School of Management. Walid, great to have you back on the show today. It's always great to be with you. What would you say was the turning point in this, uh, Walid? Was it was it the fact that the tweet that came from our foreign affairs uh, department was then translated? Yeah, it was translated into Arabic and also tweeted on the official Embassy of Canada website. Hmm. And so it was the form in the audience that it was targeted for yeah. that the Saudis took particular issue with. Is that a line that you just should never cross, you think, uh, when you're dealing with other countries' affairs? Yeah, you know, so there's been lots of discussion about that. And certainly there's some benefit to being a more discreet. And, you know, Canada, you know, we're at the forefront of, you know, putting human rights and progressive issues uh, in international trade and relations. And that's something that this government, you know, we have to be proud as Canadians that the government is pushing uh, all of those issues because they're very important to the Canadian DNA You know, one could debate, you know, whether it was inappropriate to issue the tweet. One could talk about whether the Saudi government overreacted. Uh, But I think the sad thing is that a lot of people in the middle, Canadian and Saudi, are negatively affected. So I really wish both governments would come together, get past this impasse and get the relationship back on track. Well, it's not just potential economic fallout here, but we have patients in hospitals. We also have residents at hospitals as well. Students, tell us a little bit about what this will encompass if we don't repair relationships between the two capitals. Yeah, there's roughly 15,000 Saudi students in Canada. You know, a lot of them in medicine, a lot of them are practicing interns. So when, you know, those, you know, all of these interns and doctors leave the country, That puts a hole in the Canadian medical system because they're actually serving Canadians. But also, when you think of these 15,000 Saudi students in Canada, along with all of their families, that's up to 25,000 people that are here in Canada from Saudi Arabia. And they inject $4 billion a year into the Canadian economy. So as all of these people start to leave Canada, there will be an impact, not a huge impact, but a, a, a noticeable impact on the delivery of services and hospitals that rely on these Saudi interns. But all of these Canadian universities will see the withdrawal of all of these students, but all of the peripheral services like apartments, restaurants, that $4 billion that's injected into the Canadian economy, 
that's going to impact a lot of businesses and a lot of Canadians. Yeah, $4 billion is, is quite an incredible amount to me. What yeah. I wonder about with this, this is a young prince, and, and most everybody worldwide knew that he's, he's still trying to, in a way, get his feet properly on the ground in terms of running this, this country. He's, he's got regional concerns, of course, at all times. He's clearly trying to make inroads around um, some human rights issues in this country. Uh, why, why would Canada rattle the cage with him, do you think? Yeah, that's, that, that's the million-dollar question. So, you know, if you look at, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, who they call MBS. MBS, yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, we'll use that MBS all the way here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, all the points you made are exactly right. I've argued he must be commended. You know, where Saudi Arabia is at is not where Canada is at. We would like to see more progress and more quickly. It's a different environment. It's a different context. But you have this new, this new crown prince. He comes in and he has this vision 2030. What he's trying to do is to move his country into the modern economy, you know, where there's more rights for women and minorities, more democratic rights. It's not like in the West where we have democracy. It's a different context. And so he must be commended for pushing his country forward. And it's unfortunate that he's not moving as fast as many people would like. But we have to think of the long game. Yeah, and, it, this, and, he, and he's, he's dragging the clerics along. I mean, he's dragging he's dragging a lot of people along with him who uh, who have been highly resistant around all of this. And and I have a personal experience that goes directly to that point. So I teach in Saudi Arabia a couple of times a year, and when I first went there about eight years ago. The women were on one side of the room with a big curtain and the men on the other. Wow. That was eight years ago. Hmm. When I was there some months ago, they're all sitting together at the tables, men and women interacting, eating together. What's happened in Saudi Arabia in the short duration that he's been the crown prince has been remarkable. And I think the biggest loss for Canada is not just on the economics, but it's on the potential to impact Saudi Arabia in the social and political environment. You know, we have 15, 20,000 Saudis here. They're here for one year, two year, three year, five year. And we instill in them Canadian values of diversity, inclusivity, uh, and, you know, being able to have rich debates about issues that you may not be comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And when I go back to Saudi Arabia, I teach these students here. I teach them there. I see how Canadian values are becoming instilled in them. So over a longer period of time, Canada has the ability to help Saudi Arabia, not just economically, but also politically, socially, and culturally. Do you think one of the fallouts will be, though, that Canada takes a step back? Maybe they're not as willing to criticize other countries when it comes to human rights abuses, which you can say that Saudi Arabia has been guilty of. Yeah, so I I think the big lesson here is that it's not that Canada should ever give up on pushing our values. As Canadians, you know, we're leading country in the world for human rights and diversity and inclusivity. You know, we're one of the best countries in the world, and most of the listeners know that. We should we need to always push for those values. But one needs to be discreet, and one needs to push those values always in your conversations. Uh, but uh, I think there's a big lesson in this that, you have to anticipate what 
the reaction might be, and it might be what you didn't expect with larger consequences. Yeah, I, I want to get back to that um, historic tweet, if you want to call it that. Um, at the time that I saw it, I thought, well, this is the summer, and uh, you know, maybe there's like a summer intern kind of work in the Global Affairs Canada Twitter uh, Twitter stream, and, and perhaps this is it. But it's come to light since that this was actually you know, quite consciously done. Is this maybe the first time that we've seen our global affairs minister, Christopher Freeland, overstep? Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that is a, a difficult question because, you know, there have been these kinds of statements before and maybe they weren't to tweet, maybe they were delivered in person. So therefore they weren't necessarily translated into the local language and sent. So, you know, there's a huge debate where some people are saying the tweet, it's not that it was so inappropriate. Uh, maybe the medium was. Uh, some people are saying maybe the government in Saudi overreacted. The bottom line is that in international politics, one needs to be prepared for these kinds of mm-hmm. reactions. And especially given that in Saudi Arabia, MBS is making such a strong play to to be seen as very aggressive. So there's been two other countries that have seen his wrath, um, and now Canada is the third. And so this is something that not just our foreign minister, but other foreign ministers as well will understand that, you know, this is a possible reaction you can get. Now, if the country has nothing to give you and you criticize them, that's fine. But the relationship between Canada and Saudi Arabia has significant value for Canada politically and economically. But also, our companies are doing so well in Saudi Arabia yeah. in their position to do really well going forward. Is Canada now almost set back for a long period with that country? It really depends on how far this goes. So as I understand, the discussions are already ongoing to make some exceptions for which students will leave. So there is some movement towards trying to roll this back a little. But I think the big saving grace for Canada economically is, for example, Bombardier, a Canadian champion. It's doing work for the, for the, in the capital of Saudi Arabia, Riyadh. And they won this global competition to deliver these services um, in, in, in Saudi Arabia, transportation networks and so on. And um, they're really globally competitive. They won that. It's unlikely the Saudi government would ever roll that back Mm -hmm. because they would then have to go to number two on their list. Why do I say that? As Saudi Arabia continues to roll out their Vision 2030, they're going to need more of Canada. They're going to need more Canadian companies like Bombardier, like SNC-Lavalin, like Ellis Don, like Stevenson Engineering. They're going to need more of these companies because they're globally competitive. And I think that's going to help bring the relationship back. I do wonder, though, I mean, if an EU country had criticized Saudi Arabia, if the United States had criticized Saudi Arabia, would MBS's reaction have been the same considering how much larger there are economic connections? I mean, everyone's used to Donald Trump doing that every morning. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's, um, yeah there's no question it was... Uh, an opportunity 
Um, the idea being that if it was the UK foreign minister or the US Secretary of State or Donald Trump, the reaction likely would have been, uh, <laughs> you would not have seen this massive reaction on the part of the Saudis. And that's because the economic relationship between those two countries and Saudi Arabia are much more important. So if Saudi Arabia, first of all, they're not going to alienate the US, which is their protector yeah. in the Middle East. And same with the UK. So these are two major military powers. And I'm not sure how much the listeners know, but, you know, the big arch rival of Saudi Arabia is Iran and there's the war in Yemen. There's a lot going on and Saudi Arabia needs Western security guarantees. And so the UK and the US really help Saudi Arabia. And it would be an existential threat to Saudi Arabia without US backing. Well, there have been a lot of questions about whether Canada stands alone right now, but we are hearing rumors that maybe London is using back channels to smooth things over. How likely is it that we are going to get a bit of a smoothing of relationships in the near term between the countries? You know, there's a lot of self-interest going on here. And if you look at you know the whole movement that bought, brought Donald Trump to power is the loss of American jobs and the Rust Belt and, you know, make America great again, that kind of idea. What Donald Trump is thinking about is bringing jobs to America. And a similar sentiment is there in the UK with the Brexit. So the idea is that there's a lot of self-interest to say, you know, if the Canadians don't want the business, we'll take it. Because these are a lot of jobs. So uh, London, Ontario, there's 2,500 people producing military equipment that goes to Saudi Arabia. If the Saudis decided tomorrow to move that contract to the UK or the US, and that's 2,500 families in London, Ontario, that are out of luck. It's a terrible outcome. And 2,500 families in London or in Washington that would be happy. Well, the uh, I was going to ask about that military contract because, you know, I needn't tell you. It was immensely controversial uh, when the Trudeau government decided to proceed with the deal that had been first arranged by the Harper government. Uh, might there be a faction, though, in Canada that would say, well, actually – that's good. That's not our value. It's not our value to uh, to essentially send armaments that might be used potentially against uh, their own people uh, to Saudi Arabia, which was, of guess, of course, the, the initial suspicion in all of this. Yeah, and you know that that's a whole narrative, and you can have an entire show to to, <laughs> to say whether or not Canada should send the weapons. A lot of people say we shouldn't, and 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 that's one line of argument. Another line of argument says. We should, because if we don't, someone else will. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another line of argument is, and I think this is really important and incredibly controversial. And there's, this is, you know, like a a very controversial topic, but, you know, a lot of people are very critical of Saudi Arabia, but one needs to think of the counterfactual. That is the West's best ally in that part of the world. The Saudi government has worked so closely with the West on so many files People need to think really hard about what would possibly replace them if, for example, another power, uh, if, if, if someone else came into power. And so, as, as you know, this is not an ideal situation, but people always need to think about the counterfactual. And yeah. Saudi Arabia has been a stable Western ally since its inception in the 70s. Yeah, sometimes real politic ensues in geopolitics and you, you kind of have to... Uh... You have to support people you might not otherwise support. You know, and this is a terrible thing to say, but just imagine if there was a change there 
and a government unfriendly to the West went into power. So everybody that fills up their cars in Canada, instead of paying $80 to fill their tank, they'll be paying 200 And, you know, so if people say, well, I don't care, that's fine, then the entire West can withdraw. There'll be a complete change in the order, and it'll impact our very way of life. So that's why I believe the right way, and historically, what you see is that, you know, the European Union won the Nobel Peace Prize about eight years ago. And the reason the the European Union won the Nobel Peace Prize was because Countries that trade with one another tend not to fight with one another. And many of the listeners will forget, but 50 million people died in World War II. That's a big number. But since the inception of free trade in Europe, there's been peace. I mean, there's issues, of course, Ukraine and so on, but there's been relative peace. That's why the right way to engage these other parts of the world is for the West to engage them economically. And then over time, as these countries understand Western values more, you see it around the world. They move in the direction of of Western values and democracy. It just takes a longer period of time. Well, Waleed, today we really do appreciate your insights. I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Anytime, and uh, thanks for calling. That's Waleed Hijazi. He is an associate professor of economic analysis and policy at the Rotman School of Management. Trade tensions are escalating around the globe, and our next guest joins us to lend insight into what we've seen so far and where it may lead. Dan Suryak is a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute. He's also the director and principal of Suryak Consulting, and he recently published a policy intelligence memo titled The March into Trade Wars, U.S. Policy Aims and the Implications for Reconciliation. He joins us now. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I want to highlight that word reconciliation. Is there any kind of reconciliation in sight? Uh, not at the moment. Uh, we're still in the uh, uh, escalation phase. Uh, we've had uh, tariffs going up around the world. Definitely uh, the, the most important ones are between China and uh, the United States. But certainly the ones that have gone up between Canada and the United States on steel and aluminum, uh, they're, they're just uh, starting to work their way through the supply chains. We're starting to feel the pain uh, probably on both sides of the border and uh, then letting the political process play, uh, play out as to how and when we withdraw from them. In terms of that escalation, is, is there a threshold where either the pain felt by consumers and businesses, it becomes too much or the the political stakes, it's too risky for politicians to push it further. I mean, how far can we see tensions escalate? There's a long way to go. Uh, Certainly on uh, the uh, steel and aluminum, this is a small small play right now. Uh, Mr. Trump, uh, who has uh, initiated these uh, these actions, is not known to back down. He tends to escalate. the, uh, the the big one, uh, which is looming, is of course the uh, threat of auto tariffs. Mm-hmm. Um, these could be as high as 25%, uh, and this would go on top of anything else which is in place. The investigation, uh, which is under Section 232 of the U.S. Trade Act, uh, is, is examining whether or not autos uh, auto imports into the U.S. threaten U.S. national security. 
um, even from uh, traditional allies like Canada, the EU, and others. Uh, they found that to be the case for steel and aluminum, uh, so they very well might be able to stretch uh, the meaning of that uh, law to cover autos. That would be huge. Uh, we would be talking in the hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, um, of imports subject now to very high tariffs. It would not be possible to uh, commercially uh, trade automobiles across the uh, Canada-U.S. border or the, U or the, or the U.S.-Mexico border with those kinds of tariffs. Um, so that would be huge. The question is whether or not, again, the political process will intervene. In the United States, there is a, a bill being uh, uh, put forward to uh, uh, curb the president's power to use national security as a grounds for, for imposing tariffs to situations where there genuinely is a uh, legitimate uh, national security concern. But yeah, uh, we have a long way to go still on this. And of course, we have the U.S. midterm elections looming, which I think is where the main political action will play itself out. As we sit back and observe this, a lot of people are just wondering, what is ultimately the goal of the United States? Is it just to cultivate some sort of leverage? I mean, in the absence of any short-term gain here, I mean, we're seeing consumer prices starting to creep upwards. What, what's the, what do the Americans ultimately want now? Well, there are two narratives out there. One narrative says that uh, uh, President Trump is uh, a, a genuine free trader at heart and is using the threat of tariffs and, and, and this leverage to go for zero for zero uh, on tariffs, on non-tariff barriers uh, and subsidies. Uh, this is not a terribly plausible statement for uh, most trade policy uh, uh, people, for people who watch the situation closely. Uh, a zero for zero on subsidies, for example, would require that there's some $46 billion worth of farm subsidies that the U.S. Uh, provides under the, the Farm Bill, not to mention the additional $12 billion subsidies to provide to its farmers would have to be done away with. That's a very politically difficult constituency to move in the states. Uh, zero for zero on tariffs and, and, and protection would, would involve taking on the sugar uh, industry. Big sugar has resisted liberalization in the U.S., for an awful long time. Uh, the, uh, you're familiar with the uh, chicken tax on, on light trucks. That's been in place since the 1960s. 25% uh, uh, tariff that went up during uh, a, a U.S. spat with Europe over, uh, over chicken exports. Uh, so these are very powerful entrenched uh, uh, interests in the U.S. They would have to go as part of a zero for zero. And one can hardly imagine uh, a genuine zero for zero between the U.S. and China. Uh, the two countries are not in a, even in a position to agree on what are subsidies given the different natures of these uh, economies. So that's one narrative. The second narrative is one that's actually stated quite uh, cogently, if you will, by members of the Trump administration, uh, Peter Navarro, who is the White House Director of Trade Policy, Steve Bannon, who was associated with the White House at one point, they were making the case that they want to change the nature of the U.S. economy to reindustrialize, as it were. And, and they would say things like they want to get um, jobs back into the United States so that the U.S. has got the capacity to fix the propellers on Navy submarines. These are, these are old-style industrial jobs. These went, moved out of the U.S. as the U.S. went upscale to get into the services industries, into the financial sectors, and so forth. 
and, and, and that means redoing the bargain that the U.S. has with the world as to how it trades. It would mean reclaiming certain production, certain exports, certain production for domestic markets, and giving up others. And the right way to go about that would be to set off a new trade round at the WTO. There's, a, there's an article there, a provision for this. It's called Article 28. It says, if you want to renegotiate, we'll take something off the table, and you take something off the table, and we come to a new deal. This trade war is not a particularly... Uh, uh, a structured way to get at that kind of a new deal. So right now, uh, the the uh, more plausible story, uh, at least the, the only one which has got any evidence backing for it, is that Mr. Trump is not a free trader. Uh, we have seen only managed trade uh, uh, tariffs and subsidies from from uh, from his administration. That's what we would have to go by as his reveal preference, um, and it is his America First agenda, not put forward in very cogent trade terms, but, but more or less they want to reshape America and they are uh, withdrawing to some extent their, their commitments to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, whether tariffs and trade threats are the right way to go about it or not, it seems President Trump needs a win. And so many actions have been launched, so many threats waged, so many tweets put out there that it's difficult to wind back, I'd have to think, politically without securing some kind of victory. Uh, what might we see to that end, do you think? Especially if other countries, they're, they're not necessarily laying down and saying, okay, we'll take the tariffs. They're fighting back a little bit. Uh, again, yes, this is a, a major problem. When uh, Normally, we think of trade as a win-win situation, not as a win-lose. Once you characterize it in a win-lose situation, you put everybody else on the back foot because right. they have to go to Washington and accept defeat, as it were, in order for Mr. Trump to have a win. Um, now, the European Union, uh, Mr. Juncker went to Washington, and um, they came away with a joint statement saying that they would agree to talk on lowering uh, tariffs on, on uh, industrial goods, excluding cars, mind you. Um, and they came out an announcement that uh, the EU would be buying more soybeans and LNG, liquefied natural gas. Now, soybeans and liquefied natural gas face no uh, tariffs uh, in the EU. Uh, liquefied natural gas is that, that uh, would require building of some terminals uh, to expand EU imports. It's not clear how Mr. Junker could have actually promised anything on those grounds. But nonetheless, this, this came out uh, uh, through, from Mr. Trump as a tweet of victory. Now, if, if we could, of course, provide Mr. Trump some, some victories of that nature, um, you know, uh, things where we don't charge any tariffs, because we don't charge tariffs on most U.S. goods, and allow him to claim that as a victory, that would be uh, fun <laughs> and, uh, and, and wonderful. More realistically, uh, we just negotiated after uh, several years of, of tough negotiations with the U.S., uh, improved market access on dairy, for one thing, which he con uh, continues to, to comment on. That's a pretty easy one to give because we've already negotiated a deal. And here we're talking matters of a few hundred million dollars worth of dairy market access. Now, they might be a, a bit of a pain for Canada to expand the, the quota that we had negotiated uh, in the TPP, but it's a doable. That would be a win. There are other elements in, uh, I, I suppose, in, in autos where uh, the uh, North American content could be raised. Uh, 
depending upon how the auto companies themselves uh, can manage to deal with 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 uh, changes in rules that ultimately might lead to higher costs for them and make them uncompetitive globally. But if if within the uh, the NAFTA framework there is room to to uh, tweak those rules, that could be uh, given as a win. But the the real problem between Canada and the U.S. is that we have almost full free trade. We have almost perfectly balanced trade. Uh, there's simply not a lot that's broken and needs fixing here. And so it's once you start to raise the the rhetoric, uh, it's hard to back out because there really is nothing much that we can give uh, Mr. Trump that the U.S. doesn't already have in terms of full access. So if there's nothing much that needs to be fixed at this point, I mean, we're more than a year into these NAFTA negotiations, uh, renegotiations that have been going on. So at what point do we actually get to wrap these up? It doesn't look as if it's going to happen by the end of this year. What's a realistic schedule uh, or timeline going forward? This is a very good question. Not being privy to the actual discussions as to what's on the table, what we do know is that there are some poison pills out there that were put uh, put out by the United States. Things that were very important to Canada when we got into the uh, free trade agreement with the U.S. in the first place. The, the most important uh, one was the the idea that Canada would have some recourse to uh, curtail the use of anti-dumping and countervailing duty uh, investigations on Canadian imports into the U.S. Um, and this was the Chapter 19 uh, a, a binational panel system. Uh, that one, uh, the, the Trump administration wants that one to go. Uh, and on top of that, they, they have put in, in place a, a demand that there be a sunset clause on the uh, agreement itself. Every five years, it would expire and be subject to renegotiation. So we would be in a permanent state of, of negotiating uh, our free market, uh, our free trade access to the United States. These are damaging for, um, for, for any investor thinking about where to serve the North American market. Do you invest in Canada but continuously face the prospect of, of trade remedies uh, being uh, mounted against you or of the free trade agreement disappearing entirely in five years for planning purposes that, that's far too short a horizon. Um, so uncertainty is is a, is a big uh, factor for Canada in, in trying to establish an, a North American trading regime. And Mr. Trump is, is weaponizing uncertainty against us. So that's pretty hard to, to find a middle ground on that. This is generally win-lose. And the, and the question would be ultimately whether in Canada would, would be seeing that we have already lost for at least a generation this confidence in access to the U.S. market. So this is a sunk cost. It's already gone. And we should try and, and, and end the negotiations on as, as, um, with, with as minimum amount of damage as possible and get past this presidency. Uh, that might be why, where we wind up on this, which is to say absorbing uh, a, a loss on certainty, a loss on, on this notion of, of a North American uh, space where we build things together and, um, and, and move on. Mm -hmm. Dan, always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a, it's a, a difficult time and things are not <laughs> going to get easier over the next six months. Oh, tough news, but 
<laughs> I'm sure we can bring Dan it. back on to uh, fill us in as the next six months unfold as well. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you. That's Dan Syriac, fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute and the director and principal at Syriac Consulting. <laughs> 